Good, I'd like to ask for your attention tonight for a few thoughts on what we practice here. There's two things I'd like to do. One of them is to sketch out the teach a very brief sketch, I admit, uh, of the four Satipatthanas, not as practices of meditation, but as fundamental orientations uh, of uh, fundamental dimensions of human experience, basically. So instead of speaking about the exercise of the Satipatthanas, the four foundations or the four establishments of mindfulness, I'd like to speak of those of the raw material, rather than the actual practice of the Satipatthanas I'm interested in, in, um, looking at what these teachings refer to in my psychological experience. That'd be the first part. And the second part, I'd like to say something about uh, mindfulness. It's always helpful to clarify a little bit what that exactly is. And um, I'd... I'm a little biased. I'm a Buddhist teacher. Besides being a therapist and mindfulness teacher, I'm also a Buddhist teacher. And um, I, my bias is I would like to tell you something about how early Buddhism understands that term, um, what it uh, meant in the context of early Buddhist teaching. This is the contemplative tradition um, out of which I think the mindfulness movement has arisen. The mindfulness movement, to a large extent, is only very partially aware of this, but uh, it is no secret that uh, John Kabat-Zinn was probably inventing MBSR when he was sitting on a retreat with Christina somewhere, God knows how many years ago, uh, in America. He'd be the first to acknowledge this. If you read his stuff, uh, he, you will find it there. So, Satipatthanas, behind that strange name, we find two major concepts. One of them is Sati, that is how John has told you. Uh, mindfulness was translated since, uh, the late, uh, eight, uh, since the early 80s of the 19th century. I believe this is a very happy uh, translation. I, I'm very fond of this term. It it is meaningful. It uh, has a good resonance. It sounds nice. Um, it is almost artificial. So it did not have really many other meanings before that. That's always good if you start something profound with a new word. You know, the French and the Germans are not as lucky as you are. They they've used uh, French and German words which apparently seem familiar to people and it's always difficult if you want to convey something new and unfamiliar to people in terms that they already know because they know the term, they believe they know what you're talking about. Yeah? And it takes a lot of hard work and shifting of goalposts away from what they believe to know to tell them something new. Yeah? So this is what all people, all teaching, and I expect you're in no different situation than this, are in. You will need to pick people up where they are. You will 
give them something they already have some idea of because that makes them confident to learn and that makes them say, yeah, I think this is important too, yeah. And then you give them that and then you take it away from them, yeah. <laughs> and you just kind of gradually shift the thing so that it does do justice to what actually you want to teach them rather than what they already know. So with mindfulness, this is no different. Um, it seems to be a kind of a commonplace that when something becomes famous, becomes popular, leaves its original field of application and uh, goes viral, yeah, that it becomes strangely more difficult to talk about this thing. We have seen that with terms like meditation, we have seen that with terms like yoga, karma, vipassana, uh, and now it seems to be the time where mindfulness suddenly becomes everything. So it's important that we clarify where our bearings are, and definitions are tricky. So, because things become more complicated when they go more popular, they seem to lose their edges, their definitions, the tacit understanding that exists in a field you know, no longer apply, and it becomes necessary to define something. You know. And definitions are, are a tricky business. Uh, but obviously you have to make an attempt at defining something, even though it may not be easily defined. One such attempt, very famous by now, is uh, John Kabat-Zinn's attempt, and dating back some 20-plus years. And it basically says, uh, mindfulness means paying attention in a particular way, on purpose, in the present moment, and non-judgmentally. Yeah? Famous, famous attempt of John to get something out there and basically help people to identify that in their own experience. I'm sure he was not intending to, to lay down the definitive definition of mindfulness. Now, now, this little phrase has unfortunately become the definitive definition of mindfulness. If you Google, you will find that. You know, mindfulness is basically something Americans do against depression, and it was invented by John Kabat-Zinn, and here is the definition. Yeah? I hope you're agreeing with me that this is neither in the spirit of John Kabat-Zinn nor of mindfulness practitioners, whatever their brand, you know. You come from different corners, but I'm sure you're on the same page with me that there's a little more to mindfulness than this. You know? And um, one of the challenges with definitions is that they only make sense within a given context. Have you ever tried getting a mathematical formula correct? No. You can read, you know, the proof of Heisenberg's uncertainty principle. You can read it off the page, but it's really difficult to understand what it means unless you're a pretty good mathematician. No. Why is it so difficult to read a simple instruction manual for a piece of software? Because after three sentences, you're basically meeting terms which you do not know what they actually refer to anymore. And the more you read, the more you have basically terms without correlates in your experience. That's why people don't read instruction manuals. 
that's why helplines exist. That's why friends are being called up at night and things like that. You know? So we all struggle with this, that we need meaningful correlates for the stuff we have terms for. Uh, mindfulness is similar. So one of the big shifts that happens uh, in India two and a half thousand years ago, a little more, and that has great relevance to our practice of mindfulness, uh, John has started to speak about. You know, it's the, the, the term sati was not an invention of the Buddha. It was uh, an old term, and it meant something specific in the context of India in the 5th century BC or in the 6th century BC. We're not quite sure. And the Buddha has taken up that term and he's made something with it. He's made something different with it. He's deviated from it. Yeah? The ingenuity of the Buddha's teaching is not that he invented things new. Almost everything you find in Buddhism you find in some other religions. Yeah? It's, it's amazing if you actually look closely. Very, very little is completely new to Buddhism. It's already there. The ingenuity consists of it being redefined, it being moved, it being put together in completely new ways. So the Buddha takes that term sati, which meant something like bearing in mind, recalling, holding in mind. And some of its applied forms, John referred to a body of text, which were just basically handed down. They were the things that you'd learned directly from your teachers. These were the shrutis, the things that you actually had one-to-one access to. And then there were the smritis. That's the way sati is called in Vedic Sanskrit. The smritis, you knew they existed, but you weren't actually given direct transmission of those. But you knew they were part of the story somewhere. So that was the, the broad meaning of a collection of teachings that you know you had that existed but it wasn't exactly your particular building site it wasn't your particular line of uh, religion in those days now the Buddha took that term and did something very powerful with it taking it from the domain of memory and recall and the capacity to bear in mind he um, psychologized that term and made it to something that has to do with the quality of bringing the mind into a present tense relationship with sensory experience. And remember, Buddhist sensory experience includes the mind as the sixth sense. That includes everything you can think of, remember, fantasize, images, All this is, in Buddhist psychology, a sensory experience. That's a very big difference to, say, Western notions, where you have five outer senses and then the mind has a sort of a different life, a life of its own. In Buddhism, thinking a thought is a sensory experience. So the sixth sense, um, the crossroad of one's senses, as John has quoted Rilke the other day, the sixth sense operates as a sense, and its objects are thoughts, concepts, um, and obviously memories and fantasies. And the, um, in the same way as, say, the tongue experiences tastes, the mind, as the sixth sense base, experiences objects of mind. That's an important little thing. So bringing the mind 
the function of being able to be present and connected with sensory experience in the six sense bases. But that was too complicated. So the Buddha thought of something more simple. So he basically thought of establishing four forms or a fourfold uh, pattern of establishing awareness with experience. The first one was establishing it in relationship to body. The second one, you've heard of it today, was establishing sati in relationship to feeling tone, to the pleasantness or the unpleasantness of my uh, of the flavor of my current experience. The third one was establishing mindfulness in relationship to more complex things like emotion, an affective quality. Not a little spike like pleasant and unpleasant, but a bigger thing, you know, something like moves into your mind and stays there for a while, like a mood or you know, an emotion. And finally, a fourth dimension, referring to something called, in Buddhist teaching, Dharma, which is a tricky one to translate. It has basically two meanings. One meaning means phenomena. It means anything that is content of your mind can be considered a Dharma. In other words, to establish a mindfulness in relationship to anything that you could experience as a state, anything you could experience as an object, anything you could experience as a concept or a memory or a fantasy. That's one meaning of the term Dhamma. The other meaning of the term Dhamma is more specific. It means you are grouping types of experience, patterns of experience, according to their particular usefulness or uh, according to their particular um, nature of obstruction for awakening. And these patterns are referred to in terms of Buddhist teaching. So you have dhammas in there that are basically headings of things that are particularly useful and things that are particularly detrimental to growth, to development, to awakening. So that would be the second meaning. These would be lists of basically things useful to develop and lists of basically things useful to give up. One such list you've heard last night, list of the five Nivaranas, list of the five uh, obfuscations, what's that? Obscuration. Obscurations, to quote you correctly. Yeah? So those five are particularly insalubrious things. Yeah? They're, they're, kind of, they're friends of Mara. Mara is the guy who... Who, who sends, sends difficulties around, yeah? So, yeah. He's got lots of offspring, and, you know, they're quite effective. They're an effective team. Yeah? And they have all kinds of masks, and they have all kinds of guises, so uh, you're likely to meet some of his family in the course of a retreat, and in the course of your life, for that matter. So, these last... This last section of the Satipatthanas, um, in, a, in a way, is, is the most comprehensive. Yeah? Because any state in there, any phenomenon of your experience, could be a potential 
uh, object of your establishing mindfulness upon. Now, this seems too abstract, isn't it? It seems we, we have to kind of bend our heads around categories that seem to come from another culture and another time. Uh, we need to find out what these concepts mean, then we need to find out how they relate to our experience. This seems all very complicated. I wish I could make it more simple. You know, it's, we, we live in a time that doesn't quite think in those terms. But the stuff these terms refer to, uh, they are quite pertinent. Yeah? They're quite germane to our lives. This is not different stuff. You know? Life was not different, even though they didn't have... Uh, water closets and 4G data lines, you know, they, you know, this is, if you bother looking up old texts, if you bother looking up, say, Augustine or Mark Real or somebody like that, and just kind of read what these guys are about, you know. it doesn't matter whether you're hunting German tribes out there somewhere in the Danube region, uh, defending the Roman Empire, or whether you happen to be, um, you know, somewhere in northern Africa thinking about how to bring your dad's Manichaean teaching and your mother's Christianity and ending up as the Bishop of Hippo, you know, it doesn't really matter. If you read what happened to these men and if they honestly talk about that, you recognize yourself in there. It's about doubt, it's about responsibility, it's about ambition, it's about loss, it's about pain, it's about fear, yeah? It's stuff we all know. So, let's look at these Satipatthanas and see where do they occur in my experience. In a very simplistic way, you could say these are four dimensions of every event in my experience. Think of an event in your experience, a sound, a thought, a body feeling, a taste. Now, this would be an event. Every such event manifests differing facets. Yeah? It manifests a, a bodily component. Yeah? It manifests a quality of I like this or I don't like this, pleasantness or unpleasantness. It manifests a emotional note. Yeah? It makes me happy or it makes me sad or it bores me off or I get in doubt, into doubt about it. Any such event at some point, starts having a cognitive component. It starts to have a name. It starts to get a label. It starts to be a thought, something I have a concept of. So in, in the very same way, these four Satipatthanas, as an orientation, you can find them in your experience as basically the four dimensions of somatic experience, of hedonic experience, hedone, pleasure, yeah, for Greek, affective experience, your emotional life, and cognitive experience. So in some way, these four Satipatthanas clearly speak about four dimensions of our life in which we are encouraged to establish mindfulness. What's happening in the body? What's happening in my pleasure and displeasure department? What's happening in my emotional field? What's happening in my cognitive field? Now think of these things as being happening parallel. Think of these things as being um, like TV channels. 
There's many TV channels out there, and they're all happening parallel. Now, what makes the difference is on which channel you're tuned in. Yeah? So sometimes you're tuned into one channel, but the other channels are going on. Yeah? But you've decided this is the one channel. Now, attention or establishing attention as a conscious way is we choose which channel our attention is actually on. That's what we do when we make choices. If we don't make choices, generally our attention is on um, the channel where most is going on. For most of the time, most of our attention is in channel four. It's in channel thinking. That's where the story goes. That's where the narrative happens. That's where the drama of me is enacted. You know? Where my world is taking place. Where little meanness is having its big adventure. So our educational system, our psychological build-ups favor an attentional bias on channel four. Particularly if nothing loud or particularly promising is going on in my life, say, if you happen to be locked up on a meditation retreat, you you alternate between boring sitting meditation and boring walking meditation. Uh, unless your walking meditation takes you to Denbury, yeah, which seems to happen occasionally that walking meditators get lost. <laughs> unless you find yourself in such a situation, you alternate between relatively predictably stimulating situations like sitting and walking, maybe have a cup of tea or go to the loo in between. And, you know, this is about the degree of fascination you can expect. <laughs> So in such a situation, it becomes all the more fascinating to move away from somatic awareness to channel four. You know, there must be a story going on there. You know? And usually there is. You know? So you, we end up spending lots of time on channel four. And obviously the stories, you know, get more alive. You know, they take on a really personal and poignant air. You know? um, depending on how you how you're kind of built up, you know, it's your, your kind of God's gift to the world and, you know, all these wonderful people here, you grace them with your presence. Uh, if you have one kind of build-up or uh, if you have another kind of build-up which demographically seems a little more common, you think they're all enlightened and I'm not. I'm missing out here. I can't do it. It's not working for me. Either the Buddha got it wrong or I have a congenital disease that deprives me of being, being mindful or being, having the possibility to mindfulness. So, and, you know, as the hours and days go on, the story becomes more plausible. You start, you start to as, as kind of collect evidence. And you know, obviously, a lot about yourself. So all this becomes, you know, demonstrative evidence for your the unremitting sequence of failures in your life or all the promises you've been to people and how you've disappointed them or or you come out come up with all the stuff you've missed out on, you know, starting with your deprived childhood to missed professional opportunities, you know, your first heartbroken moment and then and so forth, you know, so the story's kind of the, the plot thickens, basically. Yeah? <laughs> and the plot is generally about me. And it usually takes a, a, an unhappy turn at some point. <laughs> it usually takes an unhappy turn. So that's why Channel 4 is not really a place to be happy. Right? So, 
much of our Channel 4 experience, as, as enthusiastic our visitation of that channel is, it doesn't actually deliver a lot of happiness. You know? I'm not decrying that we have learned a lot, we have developed you know, as a culture, we have found immense uh, techniques to acquire knowledge, to transmit knowledge, to implement knowledge. We've done fascinating things. Uh, I think as a species, we, we, we're quite rampant on this planet. Uh, if you want to rate that as a success, and there are some questions about this, if you want to rate the fact that there's a lot of us as an evolutionary success, we, we're good. You know, we've done it. Unfortunately, some of the things that work in terms of evolution don't seem to work in terms of happiness. You know, happiness doesn't seem to be part of evolution. So what is good for evolution is not necessarily good for happiness. We can be quite evolved in terms of numerical appearance on this planet, and yet we can be quite miserable in that. You know? So it, it's necessary to understand what gets us out of the bushes and down from the trees and uh, what makes us uh, more cultured in some way. It doesn't necessarily make us more happy or more awakened. Yeah? This is quite startling. You know, there's an idea that things, more consciousness and so forth, be becomes better, but actually we're not getting happier. Yeah? And affluent societies are particularly bad at producing happiness. Yeah? If all the relevant statistics are anything to go by, yeah? adolescent suicides, consumption of antidepressants, uh, you know, look, the, the miasma of mental health uh, ailments uh, that uh, seem to afflict our societies. Um, and, uh, you know, a, a general anecdotal evidence, if you interview people on the road, uh, 40% say they're either depressed or have had major depressions in their life. So, you know, this is, this is not speaking for happiness. It's very obvious that some of the stuff we do that develop our societies, that develop our economies, that develop our technologies, don't actually make us happy. I think it's fair to acknowledge this. And some of this has to do with a preponderance on spending our attentional facility on things that not necessarily deliver on happiness and well-being. So it makes sense to question the habit of remaining on Channel 4 and at least take some decisions. It may be useful to learn to attend to another channel. So one of the things meditators do, whether mindfulness meditators or Buddhist meditators or you know, any meditative tradition you turn to, has understood the primacy of body. There is no way you can practice without, in some way, being embodied and aware of your embodied nature. <coughs> John has quoted Merleau-Ponty, you know, that, that we are in the world as the heart is in the body, which is a powerful statement, isn't it? We are embedded in the world as the heart is embedded in a body. Yeah? In other words, if you think that through, it means that basically your relationship to world, that's others and a planet, is profoundly connected. You are participating in something. <coughs> as is, and you 
you are in a relationship to that as your heart is to the rest of your body. Yeah? In other words, you can't take them apart without some major dysfunction taking place. Disembodied hearts really don't do very well, and disheartened bodies really don't do very well either. So, Satipatthana, a teaching to suggest to us that we take authorship of where attention goes. Sometimes it's useful to think profoundly about things, and sometimes it's useful to attend to the breath rather than to think about things that make us crazy or lonely or angry or anxious. Yeah? Rather than habitually following the, the tendencies of the mind to have sensory experience, have a feeling about the sensory experience, start developing an emotion about the feeling we have about the sensory experience and developing a story about what just went on with us, increasingly forgetting the feeling and the sensory experience that triggered all this and sticking with the story that goes, the longer it goes on, more and more about me, 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 and less and less about the thing that originally started the story. So one tool coming from Buddhist, in fact, Indian contemplative traditions is learning to make decisions where attention goes. This is where we have most freedom. We have most freedom in granting, bestowing, offering our attention to something and not doing so. It starts off with attention. Sati, mindfulness, is not attention. Although pop psychology and much of the even Buddhist world, and let alone the mindfulness world, often identifies the two. Let me say that very blunt. Mindfulness is not attention. It is one of the tragedies to identify the two with each other. Attention is a prerequisite for mindfulness, but mindfulness is a lot more than attention. Attention is twofold. We know, since... William James, who put it very nicely, that we have voluntary attention and we have involuntary attention. Involuntary attention is by far the largest part. Involuntary attention is something that has to do with evolution. It, has, it means that if something loud, sudden, unforeseen, heavy, um, screaming happens, all my attention goes there. That's why, that's why children get screamed at if they don't obey. Generations of educators say this is a bad thing to do, screaming at children. It just looks bad. It's not good for the children. It's not good for the parental self-respect. Other people take offense at it. And uh, kids get screamed at. Why do they get screamed at? Some of these little kids do not uh, bestow their parental folk with the necessary attention And because that doesn't happen and the kid refuses to bestow such attention to parental instructions, sometimes the parental instruction decides I'm resorting to an evolutionary technique, which is called I raise my voice. And raising one's voice immediately draws attention. Even defiant little kids cannot refuse that evolutionary call. And because they can't refuse, they finally end up listening. This is not pretty, 
Uh, it takes a lot of therapy to get that straightened out later on. It leaves bad feelings. You know, it's costly in terms of GNP and so forth. It's, there's lots of reasons that speak against this. We all know them. Um, and yet we also know that's what we do when we get not the sort of attention we feel we deserve after a while. We start talking a little more loudly. Yeah? And something happens. Something happens. Yeah? And this is a very deep-seated example of involuntary attention. We cannot really help it. Now, involuntary attention is very useful if you have dangers, if things happen suddenly and they, you know, cobras creep out of the cupboard and saber-toothed tigers jump from behind a curtain. You know, involuntary attention is your friend. It'll assess the situation, it'll take the best choice, and you'll either survive or you won't. But if you want to survive, don't rely on conscious judgment or something like that. Don't rely on intuition. You know. Rely on your brain. You know. Not just a little bit of you know, 150,000 years of prefrontal cortex. Uh, Four billion years of basically cellular development. There's a lot of intelligence in there. And if you're going to be safe from that situation, it's going to be due to your... Um, instincts rather than your intuitions. It's going to be due to something very profoundly honed and deeply embedded in your reptilian brain rather than in your conscious decision-making process. Yeah? So your friend is not your neocortex in that situation. Your friend is something a lot more deep and having connections to involuntary attention. Now the problem is if no saber-toothed tigers are around, if no bosses are going to knock you over, and if no cobras are coming out, involuntary attention isn't really very malleable. It wants to be entertained. It's kind of scanning the horizon. It says, okay, what's happening? What's on offer there? Where is a nice face? Is there something to enjoy? Is there something to eat, see, feel, listen to? And if it doesn't get anything, it sulks a little bit. And then it turns inward and says, okay, if I don't get anything from outside, I go and get it from inside. I think about it. I fantasize it. I remember it. Yeah? So it starts playing with things it remembers or it conceives as fantasies. And it does a lot of that. You know, we can sit here, we all know it. Some of us think a little more about the past and some a little more about future, some a little more about sex and others a bit more about gardening and recipes and holiday planning. You know, what, you have your own favorites, but you will find out that your mind is preoccupying itself due to a lack of overt sensory stimulation with either the past or the future. Anecdotal evidence claims that uh, you know, the younger you are, the more you're speaking about the future, the older you get, the more you think about the past. <laughs> I, leave, I leave that up to ascertain in your own experience. And um, that's what involuntary attention does. It's there, it's sudden, it's evolutionary, and it doesn't have a commitment to awakening or to happiness. You know? It has a commitment to survival. And those two things are not at all congruent. You know? So voluntary attention is a lot harder to develop. It means I give attention to a chosen thing, a process, a dynamic, a person, an aspect of my experience, and I'm trying to sustain attention there. Well, that's where the magic starts. So much of mindfulness training is basically training of temporal continuity of attention to a thing 
and spatial um, stability. Yeah. So that's, those are the two directions in which we train attention, voluntary attention, which grows a lot slower than involuntary attention, which isn't easily accessible, which needs a lot of sustaining. You need people who are attentive to teach you to model you how to use attention. You need people not just modeling this to you, but you, who actually encourage you in it and who, who have skill in supporting you when you try to learn this. Yeah. Mindfulness, like language, is not inborn. You need to learn it. Some things you learn, some things you don't. You only learn it from people who know how to do this. Mindfulness is one of them, like empathy or speech. You know? If there's nobody there to talk to you, to help you speak, uh, and to speak, uh, so for you to be uh, seeing them and listening to them, you will not learn to speak. Same with empathy. You need somebody who is empathetic with you, who helps you being empathetic when you're trying to do this, who validates you when you are actually doing this. You know? It's not inbuilt. It's cultural. It's, it's acquired. The potential is inbuilt, thank, thankfully, but the actual practice needs to be honed. Sati, mindfulness, is the same category. We don't do it naturally, like involuntary attention. That's why meditation is difficult, because when you sit down and try to follow your breath, which sounds easy enough, what speaks against you, or what speaks against this project, is the force of your involuntary attentional habits. Yeah? They are pleasure-seeking, they are pain-avoiding, they are uh, geared to protect you against threats. If there are no threats, and we're trying to have this uh, as, as safe as possible, that's what, what one of the things we do on retreats, we try to create as the safest possible situation. We try to make sure that you get food, that you know where to sleep. We make predictable schedules. We don't play, we don't play around with those schedules. We don't try to scare each other. We're not trying to, you know, we're not trying to <clears throat> make erotic overtures to you or try to nick your purses or, you know, or, 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 you know, we don't do such things. We try to do everything to the contrary to create safety because we all know we're only going to do experiments with the sort of wobbly edges in our psychology when our outward situation is safe enough that we can actually risk doing these sort of things, where we can risk going in, in touch with our own vulnerabilities. So that's one of the parts of a retreat, is creating that, and creating that in a collective fashion, which is unusual. Mostly when we're in our vulnerable spots, we try to be on our own or with a friend or so. But here... Mindfulness and meditation practice is a, a way in which we can learn the tools to actually go to places where it doesn't always feel clear or doesn't always feel safe. Because all good learning happens in places where we are not necessarily safe. If we stay within the safe zone, the comfort zone, it's likely that very little learning takes place. All learning takes place when we feel slightly beyond what we actually feel comfortable with, beyond what we feel we're capable of doing. We're confident, we know how it works. Yeah? Most of the time, 
We don't want to go to the edge. We don't want to go to the quiver. We don't want to go to places where we don't feel competent or confident. Yeah. If you let me, I like to go to places it feels safe until I get bored. Yeah. When, it's, when it's been safe long enough, I get bored. Yeah. Usually you oscillate between creating safety and stability and then you get bored with it and you try something new. Or you try something a little more risky. Or you try something, you kind of say, okay, happiness, the happiness that comes from safety, I have tasted now. Now I need to take it. I take another step. This thing is not going to deliver any longer. And we become getting curious, what's, okay, what else? What's next? What, what really makes this happen? So we begin developing a type of curiosity. And sati is a wonderful tool for this curiosity. Why is it wonderful? Why are we encouraged to strengthen this? Well, we're encouraged because just about every dimension of development goes back in some way to sati. The dimension of ethics goes back to the development of mindfulness. The dimension of wisdom goes back to the development of mindfulness. The dimension of stillness and calm goes back to uh, the development of sati. And the, develop- the dimension of the four forms of universal empathy, four forms of the Brahma-viharas, all those go back basically to a seed quality that is already there in mindfulness. Now you'll understand, this is a lot more than the word attention conveys in English language. You'll understand, if we agree that mindfulness, as the Buddha sees it, in its power to transform human suffering, of which John spoke the other night, if we reduce that powerful, transformative function of mind that is at the heart of empathy, at the heart of wisdom, at the heart of stillness, at the heart of um, ethics. If we reduce that to the function called attention, we lose a lot. We lose an awful lot. It becomes a lot too simple. Because attention is not necessarily moral. You can clean out the bank safe. It's not a particularly moral activity. You can have you should have lots of attention when you do that. You know? Your chances of getting away are a lot better. It doesn't make the activity ethical. You can shoot somebody. You can aim at somebody. You know? If you're a good marksman, you aim. You know a lot. You know how to hold your breath. You know how to establish stillness. You know how to, uh, how to influence your heartbeat. You know how to be really attentive. This is not an ethical activity. This is not particularly mindful in terms of awakening or in terms of empathy or in terms of ethics or in terms of wisdom at all, you see? There's a difference there. And if we, if we agree that these differences don't matter, <clears throat> that because this is too complicated to explain, let's just settle for attention, and we could keep training that ourselves and we teach that to people, then something happens, you know? We lose something, something precious, something quite potent, something potentially, you know, really important. 
So let's have a look at some of the images in which the Buddha speaks of sati. Rather than give you definitions of sati in terms of early Buddhist teachings, um, let's look at some of the images. You're probably familiar that sati is the quality that appears in most of the charts. Early Buddhism being an oral tradition has lists, lots of lists. So you, you can make some statements the more often something occurs in a list, the more important it seems to be. There's a sort of simple correlation. Uh, there are some problems with that simplicity, but for the moment, let's take it as, at its face value. Sati occurs in many lists. Rather than bothering you with those lists, let's look at some of the images in which the Buddha speaks in analogies of sati, of mindfulness. Sometimes images travel better than definitions. To make a definition work, you need to have a context in place so that the definition makes sense. But images are a little more mobile. So the Buddha speaks in a variety of ways of, of sati. Let me see whether I can get a few of those images together. One very simple and striking image is he describes bodily awareness or bodily mindfulness in, a, in an image where he says, imagine there is a crowd of people who have assembled to see the, the, the bell of the country singing and dancing. Yeah? And through that crowd of people who are completely focused on the bell, uh, dancing and singing up front there, a man with a, a bowl brimful of oil on his head has to walk through the crowd. Yeah? And his task is not to shed a drop of oil. And behind our man with that bowl of oil on the head, we have another man with a drawn sword, threatening to lop off his head at the first shed drop. Would, and then he turns to his monks, would monks, would this man allow himself to be unaware in his bodily movements, in his bodily behavior? And he say, no, no, he wouldn't, he would lose his head. He says, this is what I mean with mindfulness of the body. This is a very stark image, isn't it? Yeah, sitting there, you know, and really being embodied as if at the risk of losing your head. This is a stark image. Yeah. An image for bodily awareness. There are other images. A lot of images about perspective and panorama. A man sitting on as a charioteer on his ox cart, having in front of him the reins for his animals, his animals, the road, the distance, maybe the cartload, and being relaxed and having all this in a sort of panoramic overview. This is also called sati. That's easy to recognize, isn't it? It's a kind of spacious, open, relaxed, panoramic perspective we all like. So that is an image for sati. Then we have another image of a man climbing onto a tower and overlooking the lay of the land. Again, very straightforward. Then we have images. Um, one image is of um, a cowherd, a cowherd boy. Two takes. Take one is cowherd boy is in, in the rainy season, so the fields, the crops are high, and the cows want to run from the pasture into the crops, which is what our cowherd boy has to avoid. So he jumps up and down, he has a stick, he hits them, he screams, he shakes his arms. He has a hell of a time to keep these cows out of the field and on the pasture. This practice is not called sati. This practice is called protection. 
Rakati. And then <clears throat> take, two months later, crops are harvested. Uh, the cows are just happily on the meadow. They don't want to go anywhere else because they haven't anything attractive outside of their meadow. And they're just grazing. And our coward boy just lies in the shadow of a bush, occasionally lifts his head and looks over and says, Oh, where are the cows? Nothing bad is happening. There they are. Wonderful. I go back. This is called establishing sati. That's an interesting image. It speaks of a placid situation in which there is no need to willfully interfere or stand up or shake arms, scream, hit, do things, run around. Nothing of that is needed. So I think it's an easy image. And it's not difficult to see that some of the ox herding pictures in the Zen tradition come probably from that imagery. The cows that do no longer run away, and the cows that are wild and have been running away. Then we have images, two images where Sati is likened to a gatekeeper. One of them, the gatekeeper stands at the city gate and scrutinizes the people who want to come into the city. The ones he knows that they live there, he lets them in easily, and the ones he doesn't know whether they live, he scrutinizes them and questions them. Some of them he lets in and some of them he doesn't. And we are told Sati, like that gatekeeper, protects his city. Sati protects the heart from unwholesome influences. Doesn't exactly strictly sound non judgmental, does it? To go back to the famous definition. Um, Another gatekeeper, another image, gatekeeper there is having a very different job. He's waiting impatiently two important messengers coming from afar. Two important messengers have names. One is called Samatha, the other is called Vipassana. And these gatekeepers, gatekeeper waits for these messengers and when they come, rather than letting them get lost in the maze of, uh, of, of alleys and its market days, so rather than get lost in the city, which they don't know, he takes them by the most direct route and leads them to the governor so that they can deliver their important message. So Sati, very clearly, in the role of efficiency, in the role of economy, in the role of making something very straightforward, without delay, without detours, without um, losing time. And we have another image. Sati... The Buddha speaks of his, uh, to his monks and he says, um, imagine a surgeon who receives a patient and the patient has an arrow wound. The shaft is broken off. <clears throat> There's just a wound there and we don't know how deep the arrowhead is. We don't know what shape the arrowhead has. Um, all we see is a little opening and a wound and a man who has a, an arrow in his body and we need to remove that arrow. And the surgeon uses a tool called a probe. He first opens the wound a little bit and then he uses that probe to ascertain the depth and the size and the shape of the arrowhead in the wound so that he can remove that arrowhead uh, kind of, today we would probably say, minimally invasively. (laughs) And the probe by which he finds out what he cannot see with his eyes that which is hidden to the eyes and is revealed through the probe, that probe is likened to sati. That's a very interesting 
painful image, isn't it? Sati very clearly in the service of inquiry, even where it's painful. Uh, an instrument that is at once stable enough to give a tactile impression and gentle or soft or uh, delicate enough to not increase the wound. Uh, a very powerful image, I believe. Showing the size, the depth and the shape of the arrowhead and enabling uh, the removal of that arrowhead and the cleaning of the wound from the poison. So sati very clearly in a very different function uh, as we, uh, than the images we have heard so far. Then we have a very straightforward image. Sati uh, likened to a post rammed in the earth. And the post has chains, six chains. And on each chain, a wild animal is tied, uh, tied, tied to that chain. And the post is holding the wild animal. The wild animal wants to run away or fly away. Crocodile wants to go to the water, the bird wants to fly away, the jackal wants to go to the village, um, the dog wants to go to the forest, and so forth. You know, the wild animals, we are told, are the wild animals of our senses. And sati, as the post in the middle, holds them until the animals become more quiet. <coughs> Rather than running and pulling, they kind of trot around, and then finally they lie down and become quite peaceful. Yeah. So sati in its role of st stabilizer, <coughs> of offering fixity. Sati very clearly in its function that later enables stillness, calm, concentration of mind. Another image is quite interesting. It speaks of a plowman, and Sati is likened to two tools of the plowman. One is the goad, and the other one is the plow itself. So imagine an Indian plow. Some of you have been to India probably um, there are some plows around that look as if they couldn't have been much simpler two and a half thousand years ago you know, if you go to Bihar there's a, I remember some very very simple plowing construction it's not something you would see here in Devon likely but think of something that has basically a wooden prong going down reinforced to the, with a steel um, piece of metal covering maybe the front part then you have some board to place your foot to weight that plow and maybe something up, up further up to allow you to hold. Hold with one hand because in the other you have your goad. With your goad you keep your oxen straight. So you have a kind of... Um, uh, oxen not necessarily want to walk straight. Uh, and if you want your furrows to look straight you have to make sure... Both the plow is in the ground, so you have to give it the appropriate amount of weight with your body. If you give not enough, you just scratch the surface. If you give too much, it's going to pull apart your, your plow. Yeah? So you have to get the right depth for your plowing to take place. And you have to make sure that your oxen doesn't walk circles yeah? or goes and eats flowers. But you have to make sure that the guy stays on track. So your task of sati is keeping your oxen on track and keeping your weight appropriately uh, uh, adjusted so that the plowing takes place. So let's, let's call that appropriate effort and say uh, clear direction yeah, would be a word. So sati is likened to this double task of weighting the plow properly and keeping the oxen straight. 
Commentary then, you know, in a slightly didactic fashion, tells us that as the plow turns the earth and reveals, reveals what has been hidden so far, sati uh, um, penetrates the objects of its investigation and reveals the characteristics that have been hidden to the naked eye, namely impermanence, uh, impersonality and conditionality. So It's an interesting one. A double chop, you know, putting enough weight onto that plough and keeping your oxen straight. It's an interesting image for Sati. There's another image which says, if you throw in a gourd into a a little rivulet, (coughs) that (coughs) gourd will float away with the drift. Sati is precisely not like that gourd. Sati is not floating away with the drift. Sati is entering the object it associates with. It enters the object. It doesn't float away. It's not floating away on the associative drift, we all know. Sati is that which provides an anchor. There may be a few more. One of them is salt. Sati is likened to salt. And like the minister to the king goes wherever the king goes in the same way sati in the food brings out the particular characteristic of the food it's an interesting image we all know that isn't it if we don't have salt we don't actually want a taste of salt but the salt produces the characteristic taste of whatever with whatever we 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 add it to the minister doesn't um, show off himself. He goes wherever the king goes and he supports the king in whatever the king does. In the same way, salt supports whatever taste the food already has. That's an interesting image. Sati in that service. Now, you'll agree with me that it's very difficult to find an English word that does justice to all of these images. Images, isn't it? You could make easily contradictions, you know. The image of stability of the post doesn't seem to be the image of efficiency of the gatekeeper. Yeah? The image of the man being calmly on, on his chariot driving on the, on the road doesn't seem to be making sense with the image of the probe that inquires and pl- plums into the depth of that wound. Yeah? It's, it's hard to do justice with a simple term or even with a simple definition to a quality of mind that seems to hold all these facets. So you'll understand that it's very difficult to actually test sati, for example. Most of the tests which test mindfulness, they test something. But it'd be unlikely that it's testing all the qualities these images are speaking of. It may test how much you forget. It may test how much people get angry. It may test um, how tolerant they are to stress. It may, you know, everybody who does mindfulness tests generally has an axe to grind. You don't do quality studies unless you want to prove something. And you don't manage to prove something unless you get some funding going. And you don't get some funding going unless you sell what you have to fund and what you will test with some airtight and watertight definition. Yeah? So people define People define. 
define sati, mindfulness, as all kinds of things. If you look closely, and it's not the Buddhists who are the most critical, it's the clinical psychologists who value early Buddhist teaching, who are the most critical of such testing, you'll find people test something. It has something to do with attention, it has something to do with sustaining continuity, and it has something to do with um, absence of (laughs) self-judgment or so. But it's not necessarily mindfulness. So if we're interested in this as a transformative power, if we're interested in this as a as a seed function of mind that brings about health, growth, happiness, maturity, uh, you know, awakening, if we're interested in that, we need to make sure that we're not losing some of that good stuff just for the sake of a little three-line definition, which has its justification. If you just want to say something, it's, it's easier to do that. It's good to, to boil it down to some salient features, but obviously we're not doing justice to a profound transformative practice that is there to make human beings happy and liberate them from all forms of dukkha. Yeah? Now, people don't need to become Buddhists to understand it. You don't need to become Buddhists to understand it, but it's important that you know that where this comes from, this is a very potent, powerful, multifaceted function of mind that uh, if we you know, boil it down to a few keywords, we're probably going to lose something in the process. Sometimes it's worth boiling it down to get a point across. But we don't want to actually lose all this. Yeah. If we're going to spend many hours doing this, if we want to grow with this, if we have faith that this is healthy, if we have faith that this is helpful, then we don't want to lose this stuff. We need to make sure that we're not even though it's difficult to define and refractory to clean-cut quality definitions, we need to make sure that we're not losing this. So, I hope some of this comes across. Remind yourself occasionally of those images, um, and you'll keep hearing more of us in the coming days. Thank you for your attention. Let's sit for a moment of stillness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.